Please be advised that this episode contains names and representations of deceased Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. The perfect vacation photo was an art that Sarah had perfected long ago, and she was putting those skills to good use on her honeymoon in Queensland, Australia. They'd eaten Vegemite, met kangaroos, and surfed to their heart's content. But they decided to head inland for the next few days, camping near the Babinda boulders. It was picturesque, to put it mildly. And Matt had asked for several shared selfies the moment they reached the secluded swimming area, surrounded by rocks and rainforest. She snapped a handful of images with the front-facing camera and showed them to Matt for his approval. He frowned as he examined the image. He glanced behind them to the softly flowing water, then back to the phone. He zoomed in on the water. The phone slipped through his hands, clattering to the rock. He told her there was a face in the photo. Sarah thought that the heat must be getting to him, but she scooped up the phone and humored him all the same. She didn't see it at first. Only a few dark spots in the water stood out. But the longer she stared at the image, the clearer it became. It was a woman. Her face was contorted with rage, and her hands reached out towards the smiling couple. Sarah fumbled with the phone as she took another picture. The woman was clearer in this one. She was also closer. Sarah told Matt they needed to leave. He turned quickly, his foot sliding right off the rocks. She caught him just before he hit the water. They clutched each other with relief. Then the woman appeared in front of them. Her hair was wet and matted, her eyes wild, burning even though she was soaked. Her small frame stood taut, waiting. Her eyes fell to Matt. Then she screamed. A wall of water fell forwards, pulling the happy couple beneath the surface and into the deadly currents below. Welcome to Haunted Places, a ParCast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find Haunted Places and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Haunted Places for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Haunted in the search bar. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to Devil's Pool, a recreation area in North Queensland, Australia, where a tragic legend of lost love coincides with a suspiciously high body count. And discover why, to this day, it's haunted. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. In the northeastern part of Queensland, Australia, about 30 miles inland from the Coral Sea, lies the small town of Babinda. 
While it used to be the site of a sugar mill, today it's mostly known for being the wettest city in Australia. The pristine rainforest surrounding the town is designated as a World Heritage Site, and the land is now part of Warunarin National Park. Streams from Queensland's two tallest mountains, Mount Bartle Frere and Mount Bellenden Kerr, flow into the forest below, resulting in one of the area's most beautiful and deadly attractions. The foothills of the mountains are rocky, but time has transformed the colossal prehistoric crags into round and smooth but still massive rocks. The cause of this change is clear, as swift mountain streams still flow down to pool in the lowlands below, in an area known as the Babinda Boulders. The ancient rocks form a maze of swiftly moving currents and lazy, comfortable swimming holes. The point where the two meet is known as the Devil's Pool. The pool is deceptive. Cold temperatures and ever-changing currents push unwitting swimmers into churning water. But it is also one of the most beautiful parts of the park, as well as the area's largest swimming hole. Despite signage to indicate the dangerous areas, many a tourist has been injured or perished in this location since the early 1900s, unprepared for the difficult swimming conditions. But the death that lurks in the water dates far before Queensland became Queensland. The local Aboriginal community that first settled in Babinda, the Yadinji, know exactly why the water at the boulders is so treacherous. To this day, it's considered bad luck for a Yadinji to spend time at Devil's Pool. And it's all because of a tragic love and a broken promise. Ulana was only a handful of hours into her marriage, but her resolve was already crumbling. Waranu was a very kind and well-respected man in their community, venerable. She was supposed to be happy with her marriage to him, and she intended to be. She thought she could be. But she could not have planned for the celebration. She could not have planned for Daiga. Daiga's eyes glowed as he danced in the firelight. He was the most beautiful man she had ever seen, and he was only ever looking at her. She told herself she wouldn't speak to him, wouldn't look, wouldn't dance as if he was watching. Nothing would come of her thoughts. No one would know. His tribe was only visiting for the night, taking part at the matrimonial celebrations. Temptation would be gone soon. The rest of the party passed in a blur. She nodded to all the well-wishers and headed to bed, glad that Waranu seemed to be even more tired than she was. Ulana watched her new husband fall asleep. Then she headed towards the water. She'd always felt connected to the river that flowed by the boulders. Like her, it appeared calm and tranquil. But once one dove below the depths, they were at the mercy of nature. And nature was not always kind. The water would pull and twist. If you weren't careful, it could push the air from your lungs and make it impossible to break the surface. There was a chaos that bubbled underneath her skin, an unrest she never felt safe to name, lest she be carried away to ruin and nothingness. She was soothed by looking at a reflection in this natural mirror. What she saw when she reached the river stopped her in her tracks. Daiga stood against the moonlight, 
as if he knew she was coming. She could not find the words to send him away. She had dreamed of kissing him, but they talked instead, and somehow it was even better. They were both young and scared, nervous to begin their lives and take their places within their villages. She was stunned at how easily they spoke together, how he knocked his shoulder against hers, as if it were nothing to touch like this. But it was everything to her. Ulana began to dread the morning. She wished the water would drown the sun, hold it beneath its depths, and let this night last forever. Daiga had a different solution. They could hide together near Chirichillum, the great mountain. Their people would search for them. But Ulana knew this land well. She could keep them safe, and they could continue their journey once their groups had called off the hunt. She agreed, excitement coursing through her limbs like the churning waters below them. They crept towards Chirichillum in the dark. It was slow going in the forest, but as long as he held her hand, Ulana knew she could lead. Finally, they tired. Daiga set up a small camp, and they spent the night beneath the stars. Ulana and Daiga held each other and closed their eyes, promising to be together forever. Ulana's eyes popped open. The sun was high and bright. She had slept much longer than she had intended. She could hear something moving through the trees. Then came the shouts and calls. The search had begun. Ulana woke Daiga and helped him up. They gently moved the leaves around with their feet, hiding their tracks. Each crinkle and crunch echoed in her ears as the noises of the others grew louder. They edged into the underbrush. Daiga's breath was uneven. She placed her hand over his to calm him, but she could feel him tremble. She missed that easy rhythm they'd found the night before. That peace she'd wanted to last forever. Somehow she knew they'd never find it again. She could hear them calling her name. Her parents' voices were filled with desperation. Waranu was near tears. She could not find it in herself to regret her choices, though she wished they hadn't harmed her loved ones. Daiga held her to him. His trembling was shaking the brush around them. She urged him to be still. He tightened his grip on her, but slowed the rest of his movements down. The racing of his heart was so loud that she worried the others would soon hear it. Warnu's legs came into view. Bulana slid backwards half a step, trying to gain better coverage. She knew how to be silent, but he knew how to track. Her husband studied the surroundings, taking in every branch and pebble. If there was a clear disturbance, he would find it. She felt his gaze fix on her through the foliage. She held her breath. Any second now, he would let the others know. They would be punished. All hope of a new life, gone. Time seemed to slow down as she stared into his eyes defiantly. But he was not looking at her. A bird rustled through the branches above her and took flight. They had not been found. She finally let herself take a breath. Daiga's hands were suddenly torn from hers. She had been too focused on Waranu. It had blinded her to the sounds of the others sneaking up behind them. 
Daiga clutched at her desperately as a pair of her tribesmen dragged him out of the underbrush. Daiga dropped to his knees in a struggle to get free, but they would not let him go. A slash of crimson splattered the ground. She hoped it was only a scrape from the wood. Ulana tried to follow him, but she was yanked backwards by another pair of strong hands. She fought and kicked, trying to get herself to freedom. The men dragging Daiga picked up their pace as she screamed at them to stop. Ulana threw her head back and felt the impact of skull against skull. The arms holding her in place released her with a cry. She ignored the throbbing pain in her head as she chased after Daiga. They had made too much progress during her struggle, and she had lost sight of him. Her own tribe was closing in on her quickly. She needed time to think. The water called to her. It could be her answer. It would give her time. She did not slow her pace as she approached the boulders, springing forward. For a moment, she was suspended in the air, between the depths below and the dawning sky. Then she hit the surface. Pain rushed through Alana's body. Her heart ached, and she cried for Daiga, her tears mingling with the tides that had always been a part of her in ways she could not name. A rumbling started around her. She could see the wavering outlines of people on the boulders above her, but something was pulling her down. Ulana felt her emotions shaking through her, foaming and boiling like the currents embracing her. All the frustration, the pain, the anger at not being listened to, of being denied the one thing she'd ever wanted, the one person she'd ever wanted. She just wanted to be here, to stay here with him forever. Then came a strange stillness. She raised her gaze as her feet touched the riverbed, but then they continued to sink deeper deeper. She felt her legs stiffen, her chest go taut and cold. She refused to die. She refused to let them win. She belonged to herself, and this place belonged to her. And with that, Ulana became the rock. This Yedinji narrative is part of what Australian Aboriginals refer to as the dreaming, a heritage of shared stories and values that exist outside the bounds of history. There is no word for the abstract concept of time in many Aboriginal dialects, and the dreaming exists simultaneously in the past, present, and future, because in Aboriginal understanding, these concepts are one and the same. It is an inherent and intentional contradiction. Ancestors make the world and then transform into its landscape. But they have also always been in the landscape, even as they were said to be striding across it. There's a timelessness to the dreaming that has been incredibly difficult for non-indigenous thinkers to articulate because European and Eurasian thought focuses on a model of time that is either linear, as future follows present, which follows past, or cyclical, as in what happens now will happen again. Aboriginal religion scholar Tony Swain suggests that both these ideas are false impositions of Western concepts on a distinct and profoundly different culture. 
It is pointless to argue that the dreaming is a tale of prehistory or even a myth in the Western sense of the word, because no element of the story can truly be said to be in the past tense. The setting is, to quote Australian anthropologist W.E.H. Stanner, everyone. Ethnographer Deborah Rose describes the dreaming as a great sea of endurance on the edges of which are the sands of ordinary time. Dreaming can be conceptualized as a great wave, obliterating the debris of our existence. While death can be a part of that debris, the pain it leaves behind is not. In this case, Ulana's pain caused the smooth but massive rock formations that are now known as the Babinda boulders. Many of the boulders have been smoothed by the swift and constant flow of water from the mountain, turning what was once a jagged maze of rocks into polished, rolling hills of stone. It takes an understanding of the dreaming, or at least a healthy sense of respect for the Yadinji story, to dissuade one from letting down their guard at Devil's Pool. The smooth rocks and enticing water lull visitors into a false sense of security. Yadinji elder Annie Wonga says that her parents always made it very clear to her that the pool was dangerous, so she stayed away, even when her white friends were hanging out there. Anecdotal evidence suggests she chose well. There have been multiple deaths at Devil's Pool, but Olana appears to be the only Yadinji who perished there. Today, Ulana's grief calls to strangers. Up next, we'll explore the strange instances where several tourists, particularly young white men, are drawn to the lethal currents of Devil's Pool. Now, back to the story. The wounds of British imperialism still bleed in Australia. Many tourist areas have deep significance for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Community leaders in Babinda have worked hard to communicate the Aboriginal legacy of the area and the dangers of the waters at the Babinda boulders. But at least 17 people have disappeared into the depths of Devil's Pool since 1959. 16 of the confirmed casualties were young white men, tourists, outsiders. One could argue that such men are more inclined to disregard the safety signs surrounding the pool or to take chances locals may not. But the pattern remains. As Babinda native Rosanna Brown told the Daily Mail Australia, like Daiga, they were passing through. Jacob had a healthy sense of adventure. While the rest of his co-workers were spending their bank holiday at a fancy hotel in Cairns, Jacob was heading to Babinda. He had always loved nature and took any opportunity to experience it, imagining what it was like for the first group of Englishmen sent to Australia. Before they had left their mark on the land, everything had been lush and overgrown. Areas like Babinda still bore some of that natural splendor. It was more than worth the hour drive to experience it. He'd left a note for his roommates before he left, but no one else knew where he was. He could be as cut off from the world as his ancestors were, exploring the unknown with only a map and his sense of adventure. After a large breakfast, he was ready to hit the trails. He checked his compass to help pick a direction, but navigation turned out to not be as easy as he anticipated. 
the arrow spun left and then right, never stopping in one place. Jacob didn't know enough to understand what that meant. Still, he trudged into the deep forest. Those early explorers didn't know what they were doing either, and things had turned out well for them. Self-reliance, he thought to himself. Self-reliance. He'd been walking for nearly half an hour when he started to get a cramp in his leg. It started as an aching soreness and grew into a sharper pain as he did his best to soldier on. Jacob stopped to take a break. Time alone was not as fun as he thought it would be, and he wished he'd brought a football handheld or a book to entertain himself when he needed to rest. Or a friend. A friend would be nice. The forest was a beautiful blend of verdant light and dark shadows. He stopped for a moment to take it all in, gazing up the tree canopy, admiring how the vines seemed to flow from the trunks like water. A chill crept up his spine, a primal one. Somehow he knew he was being watched. He braced himself and scanned the trees. Through the green, he saw a pair of eyes watching him. They looked human, at least mostly. They did not blink as they watched him. The gaze felt aggressive somehow, like whatever owned these eyes did not welcome him here. Jacob tried to call to them, but they were already retreating farther into the trees. He wanted to follow. Slowly, he pulled himself up to a standing position. The trees surrounding the area rustled slightly, but he didn't see anyone move out from under them. His feet slid on a rock, and he stumbled, trying to catch himself. Jacob's arms flailed wildly, eventually grabbing a branch for support. Thorns dug into his calves, but he managed to stay upright. He examined himself for wounds and saw a deep cut in his leg, jagged, angry, as if he'd been slashed by some monster. He'd heard stories of the dangers of the outback, but he hadn't gone too far into the bush. It was just supposed to be a swimming hole. He winced, examining the wound. Five thin but deep swipes, like fingernails. A shrill scream pierced the air around him. He froze, goosebumps creeping up his back. He could not tell if the cry was human or animal. He saw nothing nearby that would make such a sound. The trees around him seemed to sway undisturbed. For a moment, only as long as a blink, he swore he saw beautiful brown eyes watching him through the leaves. He stepped forward gingerly, doing his very best to not make a single sound as he approached the tree. Step by step, inch by inch, he advanced. When he was close enough to reach out, he lunged forward. All he found was wood. There was no one there. Perhaps he'd imagined it. Then he looked down. Two sets of footprints were on the ground. His own stood firm by the base of the tree, but the other had been smudged by something. The idea of being alone in the woods felt less appealing than it had this morning, perhaps because he likely wasn't actually alone. Whatever had smudged these footprints, be it man or beast, could be coming back for him. 
Jacob wanted to flee, but he didn't know where he was. The trail had disappeared around him, and his map was all but useless now. He checked his compass. The needle swung lazily back and forth, unable to settle on north. He would have given anything for another person to join him, to find a companion in the woods. Then, as if in answer to his prayers, he heard someone coming. He took a step to the side, hoping that it was just another hiker. When they passed, he could ask them questions, ask if they had some sort of first aid. He waited, listening to the steps coming closer and closer, the undergrowth shaking from the unknown figure's movement. He could feel his heartbeat beginning to race. He had sought solitude, but he hadn't considered the vulnerability isolation could bring in the remote places of the world. How fragile we all were when there was no one around to hear us scream. Jacob's breath came in short, hushed heaves. The steps were so close now. Closer. Closer. In a few moments, they would practically be on top of him. But no one was there. In the distance, he saw a dark blur running in the opposite direction. Jacob yelled to the figure, but it didn't slow its pace. He tried again. The figure made no noise as it ran barefoot over the earth. Jacob realized with a start that it was a young woman. When she was on the verge of disappearing through a copse of trees, he decided to follow. He yelled for her again, but she showed no sign of hearing him. Something moved ahead of her, but he couldn't see what it was. She ran faster and faster. He struggled, pushing his body to try and keep up with her. She disappeared from his view. Jacob kept up the pace, hoping to find her. He called every now and again, hoping to hear some answer. Silence was the only thing that greeted him. His movements grew more desperate. His wound was burning, bleeding. He needed help. He needed safety. He didn't expect it when the forest just stopped, giving way to smooth stone and a pool of water below. The woman was nowhere to be seen. But hopefully, water meant people. He opened his map to see if this new development would provide any hints as to where he was. The moment the map was in his hands, a gust of wind ripped it from them. He tried to snatch it back, but it fluttered out of reach, down into the water. Jacob studied the river, wondering if it was worth it to dive down and fetch the map. He had never been the strongest swimmer, but he had nothing else to guide him out of this wilderness. All romantic notions of getting lost in nature were long gone from his mind, and all he wanted to do was get away from this hostile environment. The sound of weeping began to rise over the soft motion of the water below him. He blinked. On the other rock, several feet away, was the woman he'd been chasing. He needed help, but she seemed so lost, so beside herself. Her body shook with each sob, and her face was hidden by her hands. Her dark hair was wet, clinging to her skull like seaweed. He stepped forward, but had to stop himself, noting the small, 
tunnel-like rush of water moving between them. Still, she needed help. They both did. Jacob studied the jump between them. He could do it. He had to. This might be the only other person in between him and town. He bent his knees, took a deep breath, and leapt. His feet landed on the rock. He heaved a sigh of relief. Maybe he was an intrepid explorer after all. But the rock was wetter than he had expected, and soon he was sliding ever so slowly on the surface. His sneakers had no traction against the slick stone. He tried to reach out for something to hold on to, but his fingers couldn't find purchase. He reached out his hand for the woman, looking for aid. But she was gone. Jacob fell fast. He hit the water with shocking force. It was shallower than he expected, and his skull slammed straight into the rock. He saw stars. Then he felt the current. It wasn't only carrying him away, it was pulling him down, too. He fought, struggled, pumping his arms and kicking his legs, but the river didn't care. The space between the two rocks got smaller as he was thrust downstream, but his head was forced below the water before he could even contemplate wedging himself between the swiftly closing chute. He fought to turn his body over, to look upwards, to reach for the surface, but his lungs burned, his head ached, the wounds on his legs felt as if they'd been lit on fire, despite the icy water surrounding him. He opened his eyes one last time, hoping, hoping that someone would see him, that someone would stop this. As the water pushed him farther below, he saw the woman again, leaning over the river's swiftly moving surface. Her hair was out of her face. Her eyes were big and brown. They glittered from recently shed tears. Jacob's vision began to dim. His limbs went limp. The burning in his lungs gave way to a weight he could never find the words to describe. He stopped fighting. And then, for the first time, she smiled. In 1979, 24-year-old Peter McGann slipped while trying to jump between two rocks, fell, and disappeared into the swiftly moving waters in a rock chute between Babinda Boulder's natural pools. It took over five weeks for officers to find his body, even though they were certain that it was in Devil's Pool. Police diver Peter Tibbs recounted how they struggled to free McGann's body from beneath the submerged debris that had come down the chute and piled on the pool's floor. Quote, We thought we knew he was in there, but we couldn't get to the body because the water is so cold, so deep, and it flows so fast. And so eight or ten times we went down, and we eventually cut the logs out of the place underwater. And on the last day, after we'd almost given up, we cut the last log that was in the chute, and the body floated freely. The body was then reunited with McGann's family, and a plaque was erected as both a memorial and a warning to any adventurous young men who might be too sure of their footing on the rocks. McGann is one of 20 deaths that have appeared in the area since 1959. 
but he was relatively lucky in terms of how he died. Those that survive past the chute come out in a turbulent, bubbling pool that locals refer to as the washing machine. Coming up, we'll learn why the washing machine is the most deadly part of Devil's Pool. Now, back to the story. Downstream from the deadly whitewater chute that killed Peter McGann, you'll find a natural tub of bubbling, churning water the Babinda locals call the washing machine. Like many parts of Devil's Pool, it looks remarkably inviting, evoking more of a neighbor's hot tub than a deceptively deep well filled with dangerous currents. The inviting bubbles hide a sinister fact of physics. It's impossible to float in water with that much air in it. Jack would do anything for a girl, especially this girl. He'd been dating Kalinda for several months, and when she suggested a trip to Devil's Pool, he said yes immediately. He was prepared for it to be a heavy metal concert or a dive bar billiards room. Honestly, he was a little relieved when it was just a swimming hole. Jack wasn't the strongest of swimmers, so he spent a few days practicing just in case. He didn't want to embarrass himself in front of Kalinda. She'd grown up in Cannes by the coast, so the water was already her best friend. If he could keep up with her, maybe there would be a little reward in it for him. He hadn't expected her chosen swimming area to be roped off. She had left that part out of her always exhaustive trip planning. Jack tried to make a joke of it with her, saying they could head back up the trail and find another way to make the water churn but he didn't like the devilish glint in her eye. She knew what she wanted. He pretended to turn in the other direction, but she grabbed him by his backpack and spun him around. She asked if he was scared. While all his organs were partially turning to jello, he presented a calm and collected front. Jack couldn't let her see him sweat. Kalinda dropped her backpack into the dirt and swung under the ropes. She removed her shirt and shorts in two quick but very cheeky motions, revealing a baby blue bikini covered in little cartoon sea creatures. She gave him that million-dollar smile. Then she dove in. Jack stood frozen on the trail, watching the water bubble and churn around her. He knew that she could swim and that the water was icy cold, but he couldn't get the thought out of his head that she might be boiling alive. Her head didn't break the surface for what felt like an eternity. Jack started to worry. Indecision gripped him as he fought between saving the woman he loved and his own staggering fear of death. She still wasn't coming up for air. Jack pushed his backpack off his shoulders and jumped in, praying for the first time in his life the current was stronger than he expected, tossing him in one direction and then the next. He struggled to find his equilibrium in the water, searching the white wall of bubbles for Kalinda's tan frame and blonde hair. His eyes found her legs gently kicking. Her head was above water. With a giant push, he surged through the surface. Kalinda was bobbing up and down, her head tilted upwards towards the sunshine. She teased him about jumping in with his shirt on. She bit her lip and told him he didn't need to be shy. 
Jack was relieved that she was okay, and he appreciated the compliment. But his eyes kept glancing back to his discarded backpack and the safety of the trail. She didn't seem to notice his hesitation, swimming even farther out. She climbed on top of one of the rocks that laid on top of the water like turtles crossing the sand. He wished he had his camera, but when he mentioned that out loud, Kalinda only laughed. She teasingly called him a coward, looking for excuses to leave the water. This was her home, and he didn't fit here. He feared nature while she loved it. His shoulders slumped. It was his own fault. But then she was sliding off the rock and swimming over towards him. She kissed him, and he forgot how to be scared. When they broke apart, they were both smiling. She told him they could play a simple game, follow the leader. She and her friend swam underneath the water hundreds of times when they were kids. They would go one after another, like a school of fish. It wasn't that difficult, but once he'd done it, he probably would be more confident in the water. Plus, she added with a smile, he might like the view. Jack took one more blissful look at the safety of the dirt. It would be so easy to slide out of the water. But high risk, high reward, right? He sighed and told Kalinda that he would love to play. He followed her, swimming above the submerged rocks. The water he'd been struggling to stay afloat in was the last part of their underwater journey, a reward for all that had come before. While the churning of the water did occasionally feel like a hot tub, there was no heat to enjoy, and it certainly didn't allow him to relax. Kalinda gave him one last kiss before diving into the fast-moving water. There wasn't much time to hesitate, or he'd lose sight of her underneath, but he still took a moment to steady his nerves. He could do this. He could. The coldness of the water was almost unbearable after the time they'd spent on the sun-heated rocks. He felt his nerves start to seize. Jack took several more deep breaths. Then... He was underwater. It was almost beautiful at first. The water was a clear blue, unsullied by pollution, and the rocks formed gentle curves. He could see Kalinda's legs kicking ahead of him, leading him through the trail. She bobbed up to catch her breath, and he did the same. There was pride in her eyes as she watched him in the water. Kalinda gave him several encouragements, and then she was back under again. This time, things weren't so picturesque. The rocks started to narrow. He could feel them closing in around him. He felt his lungs deflating like a pop balloon, screaming for fresh air. He kicked his legs up towards the surface, but the current swirled around him. Kalinda had disappeared. He made it to the surface and took one deep breath of air. It was impossible to tell which direction he had been swimming in. Everything looked the same to him. Jack dove back under. The water, which had been so clear earlier, was starting to grow cloudy. He looked in front of him and saw the barest tint of something moving. Kalinda. He just needed to follow the movement. The rocks began to brush against his shoulders. Jack swam farther under the water to give himself more clearance. He could see the faintest kicking a few meters in front of him. 
He followed it as best he could. His chest ached with the effort of holding his breath. He needed more air. Jack tried to push himself up to the surface, but the current fought him. Instead of ascending, he found himself sinking. Jack tried to surge up, but he was too far along the path. There were only rocks over him and no pockets of air. He tried to ignore the pain and pushed on because he had to. The rocks were digging into his shoulders now, making it hard to move. Jack kicked his legs as hard as he could. As he made his way through the narrow canal, he could feel his shoulders scuff against the stone. Jack wanted to breathe through the pain, but he didn't have enough air to do that. His vision was starting to close in, darkness beckoning. His lungs were so sore from the effort of holding in what little air he could. Kalinda's feet were getting smaller and smaller. He pumped his legs harder and was making progress again. The current surged against him, but Jack fought his way through it. He was going to make it. One last push. Bubbles clouded his eyes, but then his vision cleared. His lungs were full of fresh air. He saw Kalinda smiling on the rocks. She beckoned. Jack tried to swim towards her, but something tugged on him hard. He turned to look. No one was there. He set out for Kalinda again. Whatever it was pulled again. It felt like fingers. He was sure of it. Kalinda called over to him that she was getting lonely. Unnerved, he tried to rush forward. It grabbed him and yanked one last time. Whatever this force was pulled with unnerving strength. It dragged him underneath the surface, unrelenting. He never came up. In 2008, Tasmanian Naval Officer James Bennett was last seen jumping into the most turbulent part of the Devil's Pool, the washing machine, and never made it back to the surface. This came after the Cannes Regional Council had done its best to create a no-go zone around the natural pool in the hopes of reducing the death rate. They posted signs and created a barrier to keep people away from the washing machine. James and his friends were said to have climbed under the barrier in order to get to the area. Three days later, divers found Bennett's body. A plaque is erected in his honor at the site, reading, he came for a visit and stayed forever. Whether you believe in the dreaming tale of Devil's Pool or the power of unpredictable currents, flash floods, and overconfident tourists, there's something about Babinda boulders that continues to draw people in, despite its copious warnings. Nearly all of the deaths in the area have belonged to tourists, and no preventative measure has proven effective in keeping people from diving into the clear blue water at the wrong place or the wrong time. When the death count crossed 17, a drastic plan was proposed to make the area safer. Park officials would set explosives in some of the most lethal pools and detonate the boulders. This would disperse the currents over a wider area and eliminate some of the more treacherous parts of the pool, like the rock chute that fatally trapped Peter McGann. 
The idea was quickly shot down, though. If the details of any of these deaths suggest anything, it's that no good can come from harming the site. Tourists have reported being pulled into the water by invisible hands, and one of the drowning victims, a young male tourist, is said to have kicked a warning sign just before meeting his end. So, if you choose to visit the town of Bapinda, be careful. While children have long played follow the leader in Devil's Pool, it only takes a moment for the currents to shift. Perhaps Ulana will draw you to your death with her unrelenting grief. Perhaps currents will swell around you and keep you from breaking the surface. But it will always force you to stand witness to a tragedy, be it new, old, or timeless. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. For more information on Devil's Pool, amongst the many sources we used, we found the work of storyteller Annie Wonga and scholar Tony Swain extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite podcast originals, like Haunted Places, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Haunted Places in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next week. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Carrie Murphy. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Richet. I'm Greg Polson.